Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which I chat with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. Today's guest is Michael Ignatieff, who is the rector of Central European University and the author of many books, including Fire and Ashes, which is a memoir of his time as the leader of the Liberal Party in Canada, um, an account of his crash course in political life. Michael and I chat today about what it is like for him to watch the paroxysms occurring in the American political world from from his vantage point in Europe. Um, Michael has an essay in the first issue of Liberties, and if the conversation intrigues you, head on over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe. Um, if you subscribe now, your subscription will begin with the first issue of Liberties. I want to know what it looks like, what this, what we're in the middle of all of this insanity looks like from where you're sitting. Um, I hope that that's a fair question because I can't, I can't quite make sense of exactly, I can't organize the cacophony in my own head, but I wonder what your, what your thoughts are. Um, Oh, sadness, first of all. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a Canadian and, uh, I think Americans should never underestimate how uh, moving and important to non-Americans the American political tradition is. I mean, Roosevelt and Lincoln are very important. Martin Luther King, this and the constant and the record of constitutional liberty is. I mean, all that stuff is. Nobody is deceived about, especially if you live overseas, about what America's got wrong and the harm America's done in the world, but the, the traditions of constitutional liberty um, have been enormously important to countries everywhere. And there's simply no doubt that they were under attack last Wednesday in a way that astounded everybody. Um, and, and so um, this was a concerted attempt urged by the president of the United States to prevent the Congress of the United States certifying a presidential election and attempting to intimidate by violence elected representatives of the people. And it doesn't get more serious than that. And so I don't think it's even a confusing situation. I think it's very clear what happened Mm. and what happened was very wrong and a genuine threat to American uh, liberty. Um, so that's perfectly clear. The, the one element of this that I found very illuminating to me is um, it, it laid bare something that is should be tacit common ground in any constitutional republic, and that is um, the precincts of the Capitol building, the houses of the legislature, whether it's in Canada, whether it's in Britain, whether it's in the United States, there is something that everybody's trying to capture about these places being sacred spaces. Mm -hmm. That is, and by sacred, we don't mean they're divinely sanctioned. Holy. 
We mean they're holy in the specific sense that they are not subject to argument, debate, contention, or violence. They're like the altar of a, of a church or the mm. scrolls in a synagogue. They're things that allow politics to continue because everybody, whatever else they disagree about, holds these things dear. And so it wasn't just a, a deliberate political attack on um, a regime of constitutional liberty. It was also a profanation in the religious sense of a holy place. It was like someone going into the Torah scrolls and throwing them on the floor or overturning an altar or uh, engaging in some profanation of a, of a synagogue, of a mosque. And, and I, I don't, so there's a kind of secular sacred that we never really talk about. Um, and I think that that thing in, in, in this in this event and, and a lot of people felt a shock that was beyond political anger. It was a sense of a profanation. And I think that's a very important part of this story. And I I hope it's not been profaned forever, because if it has, then everything is politicized. Right. Everything is then politicized. Everything is then up for dispute. And there's no center around which we can agree we don't touch that. That's the Torah scrolls. That's the holy book. That's the whatever, right? So anyway. I think that thing that you've just described is what has felt like it's has been eroded for the past four years, even though no one could quite articulate exactly what is it that he's doing wrong? What is it that's so wrong about him? And it was this contempt for that sanctity. Um, but you sounded melodramatic or um, religious, God forbid, if you described it that way. And it was like, it, it took up to this point, it took this breach in order for, for us to finally have the shock response that everything he's done all along the way hasn't yet elicited, which is maybe a proof that this thing actually does still matter to us after, after the degradation of so much of what is what is exceptional about America, and it's, it is our values, it's not us. Um, finally, this blatant desecration of those things elicited this horror and shock. And finally, the Republicans seem, there seems to be some real pain on their, on their behalf as well. Yeah. 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 And that I think, I think is, um, that's authentic. And it feels like so much has been inauthentic on both sides for so long. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, um, it's very complicated to know, however, whether once profanation has occurred, the, the sacred space can be restored. I mean, I, I, I think we actually need histories of um, iconoclasm. We need histories of, you know, um, I've never forgotten looking at what the Protestant Reformation radicals did to Catholic churches in England, chipping at the statues of Mary uh, in the 1530s and 40s. And, and those, those cut marks remain. I mean, five centuries later, you can still see where these, um, this frenzied hostility 
towards uh, the Marian Catholic figures, um, it's still there. So I have th that's what makes this so somber is that I don't quite know how you get back to um, a sense of this as a holy site. I was very touched by all the pictures of people on ladders, you know, kind of touching up the paintwork and cleaning up stuff. And I saw a representative of Congress on his knees picking up stuff, which I found very touching. So clearly a lot of people are doing a lot of work here, but I, I think we can't be overconfident or even understand the process by which we get back to um, a, a sense that there's some stuff that we don't touch, we don't mess with, we don't profane. And I, that's, what, that's what makes this such an a, a anxiety producing moment because I, I, I can't quite see the, 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 the way back. It has happened in the past. I mean, churches have constantly been des desecrated and then been reused for holy purposes. Synagogues, God knows, have been burned, destroyed. Torah rolls have been, you know, we don't need to even go there. And, and somehow communities of faith, uh, I'm not, by the way, a, a person of faith, but I think something about what happened last week can only be understood in religious terms or in terms of the history of religion. And we've got a long way to go before we understand what that is telling us. I think it was very moving and very meaningful that the Congress went back that night. I think that did enormous good in terms of the restoration. No. It was the beginning of the restoration. They no, did, they finished they finished counting votes, which is the most fundamental sacred democratic process. Um, that was very moving. And that was, that was a bipartisan effort. They both did it. Yeah. But what's vulnerable here is, is, is something that is, again, very difficult to get one's finger upon. If you look at it, you know, one of the holiest documents in, um, in America, and you see it at the National Archives, is the Declaration of Independence and these Luca they're almost faded out, these wonderful documents, and you read them with a kind of, wow, this is touching the real thing. But you know, when, when in the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, um, it's immensely significant that they, they do not say, God tells us that all human beings are equal. God tells us to institute Republican government. God tells us to set up a division of powers. We hold these truths to be, that is the, the sacred is undergirded by an understanding of what is rational. And, and here's where it gets so vulnerable. I mean, you know, um, these institutions are held together by a traditions of consensus that reason tells us that all human beings are free and equal, that, that government is instituted for the, all the wonderful phrases. And, and so this is what makes this perilous for us because the, the American constitutional experiment, while it's sustained throughout by, by faith of all kinds, the actual documents, the constitutional liberty is guaranteed only by reason and therefore by reasonable agreement. And in a highly polarized um, uh, thing, you, you just, you just don't know where we go. I mean, I say this because yesterday when I was listening to the impeachment debate on CNN, it was so interesting to hear words that I, I can't listen to without deep emotion, you know, Lincoln's second inaugural, 
being recited in defense of propositions with which I utterly disagree. That is a, a Southern congressman and no disparagement to anybody from the South using Lincoln's words to say, you know, it's time to bind up the nation's wounds. Well, you know, that's a use of that language that I just think is absolutely wrong. And I don't think Lincoln would approve of it. But this is the dilemma. That is, we have the sacred texts, and now they are so pulled apart by this stuff. I just, I don't want to be overly pessimistic. I, I think that Lincoln's words continue to inspire and sustain the Republic. But yesterday, you thought, wow, this is going to be really difficult. This well, is going to be tough. You can't, I mean, you describe in your essay very well what is necessary in order to temper apocalyptic feeling and apocalyptic feeling in the face of crises that maybe warrant or definitely warrant deep fear. You have to be able to disaggregate and break the problem into little pieces to begin to think about how to fix it. And you can't do that if the problem is people on opposite ends screaming at each other. If you can't convince people who are so inflamed to be rational. And that's the that's the trouble. All of this this is all happening after Biden's election, which I think we we can't forget that. He he won. The best possible outcome happened. He won and Trump was not reelected. If he had been reelected, the desecration wouldn't have happened, but the tendencies that would have permitted that kind of behavior would have continued to maybe it would have been worse. I mean, in some ways it's good that this happened because no one can pretend that's not what he represented anymore. Yes, I think that's I think that's that's true. It's a kind of tremendous slap across all our faces. Um, and given um, uh, kind of self-validating hysteria on the far right and some self-validating hysteria closer to my political family, this kind of was a moment of silence. I mean, after the wreckage is silence and we all sit there and think, God almighty, what have we just done to ourselves? But it is something that um, the more complicated reality is whether in some sense, without being, you know, liberal, guilt-ridden, whether the, the pronoun we is appropriate here. Because one of the ways to think about this is this is simply just they, you know, they did it, Trump did it, these people, you know, but there's some much more troubling possibility that we're all involved somehow in ways we can't quite disentangle in this story. I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to mush responsibility around too much. The people who went in there were Trump supporters egged on by a president for a particular political purpose, which was wicked, fine. But the, the, the antecedent climate here is, is, is more troubling. I found when I listened to some of the Republicans, and there were a few who argued in good faith that an impeachment was unwise for reasons of civil peace, it's not an idiotic argument. And it's not necessarily excusing anybody. It's just saying, wait a minute, guys, this is so awful. Let's just not go to the next step. On the other side, there were those who said quite recently, we, we simply cannot avoid taking 
a consequential step here because otherwise it's as if it never happened. But this is where we're in a, a, a actually a complicated place. Um, I'm, I'm in the end in favor of impeachment. I think it's just unavoidable. But I don't think anybody should be innocent about the consequences. The consequences of this will mean that you know, 30, 40, 50 million Americans continue to think the election was stolen, continue to think there's been this kind of vendetta in which their institutions have been taken over by a liberal cabal to suppress their freedom. I just think that's not an, that's not an insane analysis of what's happened and that will have toxic consequences for years. And so we're not out of this at all. I was against impeachment initially. I didn't. I didn't think that he would. They would have the numbers in the Senate, um, and so I was against it initially for those reasons. But I also felt, and I do feel like, just because you can punch doesn't mean you should, and just because someone deserves to be punched doesn't mean you should punch them. We have. If a parent is punishing a child for doing something wrong, the question is, what is going to get the child to do the right thing, the proper, what is going to elicit the proper behavior? I'm not describing the nation as children right now, but you have to be able to think clearly about what the results of your actions are going to be. We're going to have to live with these people. And right now, there is no, there is no rational reason to expect that any, the majority of our representatives are going to do the thing that is good for the country and not the thing that is good for them or the thing that gives them a, a sense of, of victory because that's the way that they've been they, that's the way that they've been leading for the past four years both of them that's why it's such a miracle that biden won he didn't do, he was the only one who didn't run that way no 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 it's true it's true and there, that you put your finger on another problem which is a a kind of crisis of representation that is um, uh, it, it does seem that we have um, representatives who for complicated reasons um, reflect um, the more um, well I don't know how to call it I'm thinking of this woman for example it, it, it's a, it's a little anecdote, it's not necessarily important, but a person who is elected to the Congress of the United States and will not, as a matter of principle, walk through a metal detector on the request of uniformed officers is a person who doesn't understand the rule of law, doesn't understand what she has been elected to protect and defend. And that just, you know, I've been a representative. I, I was elected three times to a parliament and it, it's just simply unthinkable that I would walk into that building and kind of say, how dare you stop me? I mean, it's just, there's been a kind of breakdown in the understanding of the, of the basic definitional rules of what, a of what a representative is and what their obligations are. And the even more basic premise that, you know, there's one law for everybody, and that includes everybody goes through a scanner. I don't, you know, I don't care what you got in your handbag, and if it's a Glock, and and the Glock isn't in the allowed, it's a, you can't bring it in, lady. I don't, I don't care who you are, God Almighty, you can't bring it in, and so there's a bit of that going on that is just truly terrible, and 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 
and but again, there's some sense in which the, the representative system has been so captured by special interests, in this case, the NRA, that it's just impossible politically for the Republican leadership to take this woman aside and say, are you out of your effing mind? I mean, excuse me. But, you know, so these issues are, are, are a serious, uh, serious problem. I also think, I mean, this is, it, this is not about special interest groups, but I think it's, it's a relevant part of the story and maybe a different, a different cause of the same symptom, which is that it's a gamble in a democracy. A democracy is not a necessarily liberal institution. It, it depends on the majority to be liberal loving citizens. But if an illiberal majority or an illiberal pl plurality exists, there's no way around that. You can't educate them out of that. Um, and that's what that's what has happened. I mean, the thing again, he didn't get reelected. So the most damage that Trump did to this country didn't occur on January 6th of 2021. It occurred on January 20th of 2017. But no. that that four years of an illiberal rule in a democracy, that's going to leave deep scars. And I don't know. I mean, the question now is, okay, Biden was the most, the, the most loyal liberal we could possibly have hoped for. We somehow tricked a good man into running for president, which is like the biggest plot twist of this, the last four years. Does he have, does he really have what it takes to get us to talk to each other? No, no. You know, it's, it's, um, yeah, you're raising so many issues. There's no question that um, the liberal parts and the simple and majoritarian parts of democracy have come badly unstitched, and not just in the United States. Almost everywhere, there's a permanent tension between majority rule and um, balance of power, separation of powers, independence of judiciary, free media, all, all the 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 pieces of the liberal machinery are under attack. A lot of the attack on elites is actually an attack on the counter-majoritarian functions of elites. I mean, um, you know, lawyers, judges, journalists um, essentially have their hands on the leaders, levers of the counter-majority institutions that keep majority rule in check and were intended to keep majority rule in check by Jefferson and Hamilton, these people. It's not, it's not an elite plot. This is the original constitutional design for the United States and also for every liberal democracy and everywhere there. And I mean, I'm speaking to you next door to a country where um, majority rule has been used to basically destroy counter-majoritarian restraints. And so you're using democracy to destroy democracy. And Trump did pretty much the same. That is to say, I have been elected by the people and my, I'm gonna take a battering ram to the entire range of counter-majoritarian institutions. The media, first of all, judiciary, if I can't stack it, um, uh, you know, the liberal professions and on and universities and on and on. And this is a really uh, global uh, phenomenon, and it's it's a disturbing one in part, I think, also because, um, and this this is where we get to the 
the, the liberal guilty conscience. I think uh, liberals have left ourselves open to, we've been very weak defenders of counter-majoritarian institutions, frankly, because we've done so well. Um, if, you, if you then put the pressure on counter-majoritarian institutions next to the other thing we talk about, which is inequality, um, who are the people who've done really well since the 1960s and 70s? It's, it's the liberal professions. It's doctors, lawyers, engineers, regulators, all the people who essentially have positions of power and influence um, in the counter-majoritarian um, archipelago. And um, that has awakened enormous resentment and anger um, among um, majorities who've not done very well in the last 30, 40 years. And one of the places that that focuses oddly has been COVID-19. Because mm. you, you go to experts and you say, Tony Fauci, tell us what we should do. And then against your expectation, instead of everybody saying, Tony, tell us what to do, what can we do? You have a substantial number of people who deeply resent the authority of doctors, you know, experts, all this kind of stuff. And I think one of the things that's unfortunately happened is that um, the liberal professions used to understand their rationale, their privileges, their power as being earned in return for service. That is, we are service professions. Um, and our, our rationale within a political system is to the degree to which we serve. Um, we, we provide justice for people. We provide medical care for people. We provide education for people. Um, and we are respected to the degree that we provide this service to the, for the majority. And I think these service professions are, are suffering a crisis of legitimacy, which Trump has simply exploited, but has been gathering for a, a very, very long time. Um, so, I mean, we got, a lot, we got a lot of work to do, it seems to me. By we, I mean broadly the, the liberal professions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are two countries. There's elite land, and then there's everybody else. And it does feel like it's, it, this is similar to what we were saying before. It, they, elite land doesn't have any idea how to talk to anybody that's not from there or that doesn't want to be there or doesn't think that they're better than everybody else. Um, and that, they, you know, we might be right about really fundamental things like Trump's influence, but being right is not the only thing that matters. It's not even the most, it's not even the, well, it is the most important thing, but it's not the only thing that matters. It's, and to be, yeah, to learn how to talk to people who don't already speak the vernacular. Um, we, we have, not only have we not learned how to do that, we have um, contracted into ourselves so, so intensely over the past four years. Um, no, no, no question. It's not only that we need to learn to talk, we need, we need to learn to serve again. I mean, just a, a sense of what we do this work for. And I mean, I just, um, I see it in a university. I see the ways in which the university has been corrupted by celebrity, by publication mania, by, by stuff, and by closed language games, which earn you promotion and tenure and all this stuff and status and power. 
but have absolutely no connection to any of the lived concerns of our fellow citizens. And so all that stuff is part of the problem. I, I, I don't want anything I'm saying to be said, you know, it's all our fault. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we have to be very clear about the wide range of causation that has produced a moment in which um, respected experts who've earned their right to tell us what to do about a public health emergency are so widely attacked and despised by a, um, by a, by a political figure like Trump. We have to understand where that comes from. We have to think about what um, we should do as liberal professionals to make sure that doesn't happen again. And we need to be unapologetic about what we're here to do, which is to provide the counter-majoritarian restraints that make it make for a free society. I mean, that's 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 our job. We are part of the constitution of the of of of, of all these societies, and and we awaken resentment because we have power within these systems. Well, if that's the case, then we have to use that power very responsibly, very accountably, and very you know transparently. Is there precedent for this these this kind of tension to dissipate is there is there reason to hope that that's possible i mean aside from the fact that biden got elected which is a big is a big yeah. step yeah. it's a great question so i don't i i my earlier answers to you were a little pessimistic that is i think once the temple has been desecrated it it's a it's a long way back to, you know, putting the, you know, putting the Torah scrolls out and getting them back together and getting them rolled up and getting the holy book, you know, stitched together and getting the altar righted. I mean, that's the work we're going to have to do, and and, and we need to have people um, from uh, the other side of the aisle urgently and badly just to unite in that common. Let's put the, let's. Let's put the holy place back in place here and, and agree that these are the rules we have to work. That's the work possibly of a generation. And it's also possibly that some people just have to die out. I mean, Trump is incorrigible. There's, you know, this, this, this wounded elephant is out there in the jungle for a while yet. Uh, um, and, and then I, 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 I'm not pessimistic if you have institutions that do their job. The Republican Party is an institution. It's in ruins, but it is an institution. If a Republican Party faces itself honestly and says, we don't appeal to young people. We don't appeal to um, women. We, <laughs> we scare blacks to death and we're nowhere in the cities and the demographic future of our country is there and we want to be um, elected. An institution that's responsible will look at all those because they're facts and say, okay, we got to do business differently. Um, and so I'm optimistic that sheer political self-interest will begin to drive Republicans towards rethinking their political futures. I hope on the other side that, that um, this picks up what you were saying in Sludge is that, you know, you don't have a Democratic Party that simply says it's the you know, it's the addition of every single minority group and, and every policy has to square every circle every time. 
because that language is fatal to um, democratic freedom ultimately. You, you, there's got to be a moment when Democrats say, we're speaking to every American citizen, period. You know, regardless of your race, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your gender, regardless of your sexual orientation, we want to do this as Americans. And that common language is, is available to both parties. And that's the key. And, and politics is terribly important here. Uh, um, I think that's one of the lessons of the whole period is um, when, when politics is semi-decent or even mediocre, you, you forget about it. When politics is truly awful, you discover that it can destroy a society. I mean, that's, that's what we've lived in the last four years. Politics can kill a society, it can kill its freedom, it can kill its virtue, it can kill the best things about it. You can, and, and that's why these institutions, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and everybody else have such important institutional roles to play in kind of stitching this back together. So it's not the work of individual virtuous actors, it's institutions have to do their damn jobs. And we've, we've got ourselves into a conceit that it's all just a matter of, of social media communication. No, it's a matter of institutional hard work. It's a matter of the Republicans having four years worth of seminars and gatherings and they sit there and they think about why they are on basically a hiding to nowhere. Mm -hmm and how they get back into the business of competing for the majority of America. And then there are a whole other bunch of institutional things that have to happen. Anybody from the outside of the United States looking in thinks you've let the, the institutional detail of your democracy decay to a terrifying degree. You know, 84% of con congressmen don't face re-election. The, the incumbent bias is out of control. The money is out of control. Um, electoral law is out of control. I mean, you forget that the world watches an electoral process that they can't understand. There's a, I, I'm sorry to go on and you'll- No, I wanna hear it. it. I wanna but, hear it. But there was a wonderful little moment in which, you know, American commentators looked at the lines of people waiting to vote. Yeah. <laughs> lines around the corner and Americans and American commentators would say, isn't that a wonderful sign, the vibrancy of our democracy? And every single observer outside the country said, what? Why do you have to wait to vote? Well, how did you arrange it so it takes four hours for a, you know, a black cleaning lady standing in line to vote? Yeah. I mean, in Canada, in Britain, and these, yeah, yeah, there are lines, but it's like 20 minutes, right? I mean, yeah. it's the, the what what is what is um, what I'm getting at is something important, which is that there's a and here I here I'm an exterior critic. I love the states, and I started what I said to you, expressing my how much America matters to me. But there's a narcissism in America that makes it impossible for you to look at how bad you are at things and how you need to look over the fence and see that other people do these things about democracy just much better. Don't be too proud and arrogant and narcissistic to think there's nothing to learn from Iceland. There's plenty to learn from Iceland. There's even something to learn from Canada. You know, and 
the, 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 the pathos of imperial powers in relative decline is that they become ever more reluctant to learn from weaker, smaller countries. And that reinforces their cycle of decline. There is so much about your democracy you could fix by simply sending a bunch of congressmen overseas and saying, we got to fix our elections. How do we do it? And if it's you know state by state, I understand it's a state responsibility, but for God's sake, it's just unbelievable that it can't be fixed. And, and this narcissism, this is we're the greatest country, we're the only country, we invented democracy. All this stuff is an obstacle to just fixing the stuff that has to be fixed. And I won't go to the electoral college, which makes no sense to anybody, but that's your problem, but it, it could be fixed. I hope very much that a year from now, both of these viruses will have faded to a memory and that we can sit together somewhere in the world and talk about these things rationally.